When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson, and I have some theories about who did away with last week's episode. It was a blood-soaked scene, let me tell you, listeners. Uh, We're sorry that last week's episode didn't actually release on Friday as planned. We had some, uh, some dastardly deeds in the virtual recording booth, the internet, killed seeing and believing 321 the first time around so we're going to investigate and see see what happened oh no that's good um and uh, on the plus side we've been able to resurrect it and we've brought it back better than before better than ever listeners the mystery of the murder of episode 321 is you know pretty easily solved but some mysteries are more difficult to get to the bottom of this week we are going to be talking about just such a mystery with kenneth branagh's adaptation of Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile, featuring the return of Detective Hercule Poirot. We're also going to be featuring our watch list review. Sarah has picked out broadcast news for me to check out and talk about on the second half of this show. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a pretty good episode, I think. I'm looking forward to investigating these particular movies on episode 321 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 321 of Seeing and Believing, and you are actually hearing a relatively historic moment in the history of the show right now. Uh, It's not the first time that Sarah and I have been sitting across from each other in physical space, in meat space, as the kids might say, (laughs) uh, face-to-face talking to each other without being mediated through Skype or some other virtual recording booth software. So welcome to the very first episode of Seeing and Believing, where both co-hosts are actually sitting with each other in the very same room. We've gone analog. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nature is healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, COVID is kind of receding. And so it's okay to be in physical places with each other once more. I'm really excited about this, Sarah. This is going to be fun. Yep. I'm really excited about it too. Uh, no more uh, pauses because of Skype issues or anything like that. Um, and also just like, I don't know, real-time reactions to what each other is saying. It's quite excellent. And, and hopefully we won't uh, have any uh, digital gremlins in the process. Listeners, we do have to apologize that last week's episode did not make its usual Friday release because we experienced virtual recording booth problems. Mm-hmm. It was, as Sarah said, it was brutal. You, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was terrible, and we just we didn't want to put the episode up in, in the shape that it was in. So... You're getting this one a week late, but hopefully 
the uh, the face to face recording will make all the difference for sure. And also, that means that Kevin got to meet my gremlin, uh, who is my dog Sophie, and she's a wonderful dog. So, <laughs> if you hear any scrabbling claws in the background, it's because Sophie is trying to break into this room and <laughs> and tackle me. So. Just fair warning, listeners, to keep an eye out for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, for now, uh, let's let's turn our attention to the the new release that we're going to be reviewing today, Sarah. So the second uh, half of the show in the watch list segment, we're going to be talking about James L. Brooks's Broadcast News, which is mm-hmm. your pick. I'd never seen it before. I'm looking forward to talking over that one. But for this first segment, we're going to be talking about Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile. Mm -hmm. Now, this is uh, Branagh's second outing as both the director and the star of Hercule Poirot Mystery, with 2017's Murder on the Orient Express being the first. This time, Poirot finds himself in Egypt aboard a riverboat with a wedding party. As it turns out, there's plenty of bad blood between the newly married couple, played by Gal Gadot and Army Hammer, and the other wedding guests and passengers, including the groom's jilted lover, a doctor still pining after the bride, a shady lawyer, and a loud singer with bitter memories. The volatile situation culminates, of course, as these often do, in a string of murders that Poirot then has to solve, all the while navigating the complex territory of the heart, the hearts of others, and actually even his own. So to get us started, Sarah, I'm actually curious to hear you talk about what you thought about Branagh's um, previous outing with Murder on the Orient Express, like his take on Poirot is a character and just sort of the drawing room murder mystery as a genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you think that it worked for him on this go around? So the first one I saw either under not ideal conditions or ideal conditions, depending on your feelings about the movie. I saw Murder on the Orient Express uh, on an airplane, like actually watched the last 10 minutes while we were taxiing to the gate. So I was kind of hoping that it would like hurry up and wrap up a little bit, both because of the runtime and then also because I was worried that I was going to miss the very ending of this movie um, because it would have been time to deplane. I liked it fine. I think it's okay. Um, I'm not a massive Agatha Christie person, though, so I should probably like read some of her books and then see how they hold up against these movies. Um, I think they look really pretty. I am not a massive fan of Kenneth Branagh's whole shtick, so that probably like takes some points away from me for both of these movies at this point. He's so I, I liked how you started out that uh, that uh preamble about about his movies because I do feel like in a lot of ways he is a very he's a solid director and, yes. and like he's you know he's not a director where you can find a whole lot of obvious shortcomings in the style. You know he's you know he's a fine actor. He he generally seems to work well with actors he you know being one himself. Um but I'm kind of in the same place as you with Death on the Nile and that I felt like it was a solid mystery. I liked it fine mm-hmm. but I feel like there's kind of I don't know it, an essential element missing in his treatment of these mysteries. And I haven't read a ton of Agatha Christie. I've read a little bit of, of her work. Um, and I feel like Branagh's take on this material is very, very serious. He, mm-hmm. he almost seems less interested in the mystery than he is in the dynamics between the characters and sort of plumbing the darkness of the human heart, mm-hmm. I guess, which is a valid way to go about it. I think in the case of the Poirot mysteries, it might be the wrong tack to take because while there's nothing technically wrong with the dramatics that are going on in this film, I feel like 
there's not a whole lot of detecting that goes on in this movie. There's the the mystery feels like it's playing second fiddle to something else that Branagh is interested in, which I don't know. I feel like Ryan Johnson's Knives Out kind mm-hmm. of eats this movie's lunch a little bit. And <laughs> I, again, I can't really put my finger on exactly why, but there's no denying that they feel like different movies. Yeah, I think so. The problem that I have is that Kenneth Branagh is almost like a, a kind of a workmanlike director. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because he is very good at what he does. It's just it it feels almost like he's he's good at doing middle of the road, like almost predictable, but not quite movies. Like the form is excellent, but it feels very paint by numbers. And my problem with feeling paint by numbers is you want to be kind of left on edge by your mystery. Like if, if it feels too even keeled, then it almost feels like there's no element of surprise there because there's no way to know I mean, it it feels too even keeled, which means that there's no element of surprise, which means that you're not kind of left on edge wondering what's what's going on with these characters. So like it's almost too balanced in a way because he's trying to make you care about the characters at the center of the mystery to the detriment of the mystery itself. But then also there's there's not as much room for like twist and turn with the mystery part um, because you're so focused on the characters that like he, he seems to forget that there is like that element of you have to be left a little bit off balance. And while I was watching Death on the Nile, I was thinking to myself, this would make an incredible horror movie if you changed up some of the plot beats a little (laughs) bit. And if you focused a little bit less on the outside setting and like balancing that with the characters and balancing that with the plot points, I think a little bit more plot and a little bit less grand sweeping vistas on the side of the Nile, which also kind of feels like it defeats the point. Like, I don't know how you balance this movie properly. Yeah, well, so there is a lot of... It it does seem to be a movie that is pulled in a couple of different directions. On the one hand, I feel like Branagh as Poirot is is fairly interesting to watch. I I think that he's compelling. I I like David Suchet as the... uh, as the great detective in the uh, the old TV series, mm. uh, but um, I think Branagh does fine with it, and I think in his performance you can kind of see a little bit of the of the fun that is missing from the direction. Like the, there are some humorous moments in this in this film where you know Poirot acknowledges that he's he's a little bit vain, or he he says something that you know takes other characters are back and he, you know, he immediately amends it, but you can tell like he really thinks that, you know, he's the smartest one in the room and so forth. And I I think that's fun, but the, the proceedings, the things that can't, that Branagh does with the camera where he's constantly invested in these, you know, these uh, 360 pans Mm -hmm. um, where there are these multiple shots that he shoots through, uh, uh, paned glass so there's lots of different you know the the reflections of people uh on them and the way we see people through them is kind of you know broken up and refracted and splintered mm-hmm. it seems like he's very interested in making a very serious minded movie about the dark hearts that drive people to murder which is interesting enough but is it kind of what Agatha Christie is interested in I'm I'm not so sure yeah and I'm, I wish I could say more about the Agatha Christie side of it because I'm, again I'm not too familiar with these stories but I think that Kenneth Branagh's having fun both directing and in front of the camera and I kind of wish that he told his other characters to have a little bit more fun along with it as well like everybody felt a little bit too stiff and plastic for me at least 
beyond his performance. Like there, there's an element of like almost awkwardness and maybe it's the social situation that these characters are thrown in because literally everyone is either a jilted lover or like has jilted somebody else um, or they're all after money. And so like there's there's a lot of interesting like potential motivations for all of these characters. I just didn't believe the heart to heart part of it at all. The the heart to heart meaning like the uh, the the relationships among them. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone, Gal Gadot's character is is a rich heiress, and everybody else like wants a piece of that money, and it almost feels like the money is an intermediator between those two, between each of the relationships between each of the characters. It's not oh I hate this person. It's I hate this person because she has money. Like there there feels like an extra like level of remove. I think between the different wedding guests and the doctor and everybody else. Like it, it really does feel like there is a level of motivation, but it's not as personal as I think it could be. And I think I would have been a lot more invested in this story if I could believe those characters on a oh. personal level. Yeah. Let's, let's dig into those performances a little bit because that's actually the, the part that I really, I, I found most compelling about this film. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the on balance, I liked it. I had a good time with it. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I think that, a lot of these actors are doing good work. Russell Brand, hmm. uh, for example, plays a, a doctor who's on board this this river boat. He uh, has has been in love with Gal Gadot's uh, uh, rich aristocrat for pretty much their entire lives, and uh, the way that Brand plays him, he's he's very convincingly lovelorn. Like I watching him, I was I felt I felt for him, and I thought that. It made for an intriguing, uh, an intriguing little thread to to follow as it went through the whole story. Uh, similarly, I thought that um, the the relationship between Poirot himself and his his friend Book, who is hmm. somebody he knows uh, outside of the context of of this wedding party, um, and who their relationship kind of goes in interesting places over the course of the film mm-hmm. and the place where that ends up without giving any spoilers I found to be pretty touching the the way that you see that Poirot isn't just a an intellectual that he actually um feels deeply not just about the um the love he lost in his past which we see in flashback but also the people in his present who have become important to him that that worked for me I just I'm not sure it, it's working in the in the structure of this this particular plot yeah i actually found that like love in the past piece very distracting like it did not work for me at all it felt shoehorned in so i mean i haven't read the source the the source material for this particular story so i i can't say if that's something that brana added i will say the the flashback is you know so this movie begins with a flashback to the trenches of world war one and brought into that is is the trauma of the wastes of lives that went into that and the the the, the ways that uh people were wounded in that conflict and never really uh recovered from it and we find out that poirot uh wears his mustache for a very specific reason and it's very serious and shot it's shot like a steven spielberg war war mm-hmm. epic which is again, it's interesting enough in terms of the nuts and bolts of the filmmaking are solid. Does it make sense for a drawing room mystery to to open with an origin story for Hercule Poirot's mustache that takes it as seriously as 
you know, anything in Sam Mendes is 1917. Yeah. I don't think it does. So again, it seems like Branagh, he's, he's a very capable filmmaker, but he doesn't seem to be a director who's very good at marshalling his considerable technical prowess Mm -hmm. in the direction of a fully satisfying, cohesive overall uh, art piece of art. Yeah. Like it felt like he kept talking about heart and the movie kept bringing up heart and love and it kept feeling like a, Oh, we need to remind the audience that this is what this movie is about instead of actually like, I don't know, investing in some actual heart and love. And yeah, I don't know. I I would love for more movies to just be fun drawing room, like romps, like the thin man or like knives out. Like I, I appreciate that kind of mystery storytelling. This just felt a little bit too stolid for me, I think. Yeah, I, I so I'm wondering if uh if it feels stolid, is it th- this is kind of what I'm I'm trying to to get at with my own reaction. I'm kind of interested to hear yours is just where does that stolidity originate? Mm. You know, is it is it in the in the way he uh Brandon uses the camera? I I don't I don't know that he he feels like an old school filmmaker who's mm-hmm. kind of working with new school in a new school environment right like there's mm-hmm. there's kind of blockbustery visuals in this film that if some of the backgrounds in this film aren't computer generated they sure look like they're computer generated mm-hmm. and generated poorly yeah and it, it feels like uh you know on location shooting is kind of what brano wants to do but he's also kind of working with the slick new digital tools that everybody's working with. Mm -hmm. And it feels like maybe that leads him into a direction where he almost doesn't want to make the old school drawing room mystery. He wants to make something much more self-serious and uh, adult. And I I don't know if that really serves it well. A lot of the ruins felt very like CGI clean to me. Like you end up at the ruins of Abu Simbel and at the Great Pyramids. And I don't know how much of this movie was shot on location. I'm guessing like some of it, but... I felt like I could tell the difference between the shots that were of actual people just like on the edge of a river watching this boat go by and then the shots that felt like they had been pulled together from a composite of a ton of different other images and the composites and the CGI just felt so clean and so crisp and so we're making a great grand spectacle of a movie that it sort of drains the life out of everything. And then maybe maybe that's my beef with the movie in general, is that it just, it feels so devoted to the spectacle, to the nice camera work, to all of these gorgeous people on a gorgeous boat, like having not really a great time of their lives. <laughs> um, but it feels so devoted to that spectacle and towards making something that feels kind of like something that would have been made in the 50s and 60s, that it, it forgets to actually put any life in there. So I don't know. I I was watching it and I kept thinking just about just how much I miss matte paintings and like the texture and tactileness of those versus just like the weightlessness of CGI. Yeah. Uh, the it, it does feel like it's just it's reaching for for a certain effect that it just doesn't it doesn't fully succeed in achieving. And again, it's not because the filmmaking is bad. It just there's there's some sort of essential ingredient where Branagh's just not he, either he's not willing to commit to kind of a very specific kind of old school um, effect in terms of the storytelling, mm-hmm. or he's just not able to do that in the filmmaking. That kind of creates the impression that 
the other elements aren't quite working in harmony. I don't know. It's it's an interesting film to to watch uh, and and see see lots of different elements sort of working together technically, but not working together in the overall way that a a work makes you feel and kind of sticks in your memory. I don't know that I will think about this movie very much in the years to come. Um, and that's, that's a little sad. And again, it's, it's unfair to compare this too closely to knives out because they are mm-hmm. very different films, but I feel like you think about knives out. And one reason why that movie is so fun and why you kind of, you, you do after you see it, you kind of want to immediately watch it again is Ryan Johnson has the, has kind of, mastered uh the ability to translate his affection for what he's making on screen in a way that makes the audience kind of feel it as well you saw that in the last the last jedi as well Mm -hmm. or at least that's 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 how i I feel about it yeah (laughs) okay good good to hear um but um you you can tell in knives out that ryan johnson wants to make a very traditional in spirit uh drawing room mystery even if it's you know set in the modern day and it feels like Branagh almost went the opposite direction where he set something in a period, uh, you know, in, in, you know, the earlier 1900s, but he does, it doesn't feel like an earlier 1900s kind of mystery. It feels mm-hmm. almost like it's embarrassed to be a myst- a murder mystery. And it wants to, it, it, it feels like it needs to be about something super serious in order to justify the time you're investing in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't know if that feels like that's actually truly necessary. It almost felt like there was a level of tokenism that was added to it as well. And again, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the source material as I probably should be, but like it felt like the movie was trying to call attention to class differences and race differences and like gender and like equality um, in a way that almost felt like, oh, we have to make mention of this without actually like saying anything of substance about that. So it, you know, it's interesting. The, so, so there are some, some, some parts of this that, again, you not not having read this particular Agatha Christie novel, but having read some Christie, um, there the way this movie treats race and sexual orientation and even just um, uh, sex in general, just it, it feels very of a modern sensibility in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily wrong, but it, it feels like there are there are points where. Branna wants race to, you know, not be all that important. Like he, mm-hmm. there, there's, you know, an interracial relationship featured very prominently in this film. Uh, there's a same-sex relationship that that we find out, and it's presented with a very modern sensibility towards those things that um, is a little bit revisionist for the time period, mm-hmm. which isn't wrong. But then it kind of wants to also have its cake and eat it too, where where it also wants to make the the lounge singer's race mm-hmm. a very big part of the possible motive for the murder. And it feels like it it kind of needs to pick a lane a little bit to me. Yeah, yeah. Um and it's weird too because I feel like those relationships are updated for the purposes of the story, like to varying degrees of um uh success. Um did the mystery work for you at all? Because from what I've gathered, like the mystery is almost exactly the same as that in the book. The the mystery did, I I felt like there, there was one scene where Poirot actually talks about the way that uh, some bedsheets are, are folded. You know, he, he noticed something where the bedsheets are folded in one way at one point in the, the night where the dastardly deed happens. And then he notices they're folded in a different way later on. And I felt like that was, 
what I really wanted more of. There's very little, we don't get to observe things with Poirot and then see him pull things out of the background that we wouldn't have noticed in service of, of solving the mystery. It's sort of like he tells us that he noticed something that we had no chance to observe ourselves mm -hmm. and then says, well, that helps me solve this mystery, which is not really the point of, of, a, of a mystery. It, it feels like the, the deductions are technically present because he deduces something, but because the audience doesn't witness those deductions with him, it doesn't feel like, like a deduction has been made. It just feels like the screenwriter has been hiding information and then has been introducing it just at the moment when it's necessary. So did you figure out who done it before Kenneth Branagh announced who done it? Uh, yes, okay. I, I did mostly just, uh, you know, it, it, at this point, having seen a lot of murder mysteries, it's sort mm -hmm. of like, it's, it's not a difficult one to figure out, okay, this is the person who done it. Yes. Um, so being able to predict it though, isn't the point. The point is, does the journey it takes from point A to point B, uh, satisfy you with the deductions that are made. And because those de deductions aren't there, all you're left with is the reveal, which, as I said, isn't all that tough to figure out from the beginning. That's what happened to me, too. I figured out who done it like a few minutes before the announcement, purely because the person who done it had been positioned as like someone who could not possibly have done it and then also was given minimal screen time. Yeah. And that's a really frustrating way to figure out the answer to a mystery. Yeah, you know, that... Again and again, that's sort of a, a craftsman like uh, change where it feels like it's not anything to do with the filmmaking per se. It's more just um, the Brana doesn't necessarily feel like he watches a whole lot of murder procedurals where those sorts of tricks you need to learn, know your way around them so you can subvert them when necessary. Yeah. So what you're saying is we need to get Kenneth Branagh to watch like a lot more CSI or something. I mean, he's he's British. They're, they're the kings of like, you know, <laughs> murder procedurals. I think Midsummer Murders has been going for 20 seasons oh at this my point. Gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it feels like, I don't know, I, I feel like that's that's part of his heritage. But, uh, you know, no no shame, I guess, in, in being interested in what you're interested in. I just kind of wish that he would make movies kind of more within his wheel. House. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. So, what do you want to see him do next? If it's not an Agatha Christie, oh man, good uh, good question. Uh, I, I like his Shakespeare adaptations. I would watch more Shakespeare out of him. Yeah, I I mean, I could see him. I'm I'm on record as being one of the people who genuinely likes Thor. I could see him do another like superhero movie too. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'd be I'd be up for that as well. Uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts about uh, where Kenneth Branagh should go next with his career, where of course <laughs> our ears are open. To that, if you have seen Death on the Nile, which is currently in theaters everywhere, uh, and have thoughts about that, uh, let us know. You can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. We love hearing from you, of course. Sarah, we're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to jump into our review of... <clears throat> Excuse me. Sarah, we're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to jump into our look back at broadcast news for the Watchlist segment. Looking forward to it.
we're here in, in the middle segment, Sarah, and you know, we did talk about a little bit at the top of the show about how this is, you know, a historic first for seeing and believing. We're we're face to face. Um and I did say that uh listeners were, you know, like I said, it was a historic first, but that's not actually quite true. We did release recently uh, a Patreon only episode where we talked about uh the Oscar nominations that were announced last week and you know, what our reactions were to that. So actually our patrons uh, who are included among the group of our listeners, but you know, our, our select few, I guess, did get to hear the very first maiden voyage of our face-to-face recording on that episode. Our patrons are living in rarefied air and they got to hear me rant for about five minutes about don't look up. So yes, that I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. I just kind of liked, um, sitting from you across the table and, and just uh, kind of letting myself bask in the glow of your incandescent <laughs> rage. <Yes>. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say, listeners, that there's no love lost between Sarah and Adam McKay's movies. But if you are interested in uh, hearing that rant or just kind of uh, hearing us talk over the Oscar nominations in general, that is one of our patron-exclusive episodes. And if you become a patron for our Patreon campaign, uh, you would have access to that episode and the previous six that we've recorded as well. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to check out how you can become a patron and uh, check out the various levels that you can pledge at. You don't get access just to the patron exclusive episodes. You also get some swag like personalized movie recommendations, even the ability to dictate to Sarah and me what we review on the air uh, at least once a year. So uh, it's a lot of good stuff. Definitely check that out. Uh, We also want to thank those of you who took the time uh, to write in with some feedback for us. So uh, the last couple of episodes, we've talked about some really great films. Um, We had our top 10 episode just a few weeks ago, and you guys have been, you know, chatting with us on Twitter about that. It's uh, been really great. Joshua Wilson, who was actually a guest on the show a couple of months ago, had some Farhadi love to share after the episode a couple of weeks ago. He says, I'm like Kevin in that I've seen a bunch of Farhadi and not the Lugosi Dracula, which was the uh, the watch list uh, selection for that week. She, he says, Sarah, you are in for a treat uh, to dig, dig into more Farhadi. Mm-hmm. Farhadi is my favorite active filmmaker today. Speaking of the music for Dracula, I'm pretty sure that on the DVD, there's a version with a score by Philip Glass, which would be interesting to compare to the original, which I had not actually heard that at all. And that makes me really interested to try to dig up uh, the DVD release of Dracula to see what that's like, because I am I like Philip Glass and I'd be interested to see how do you approach like a, a, a film score like that? Yeah, especially like a movie that's so iconic and I guess has a lot of that space to be able to play in. So I have not seen the movie with the Philip Glass score either. And I really want to go dig it up because I just watched Dracula on streaming, which unfortunately means like a little less music, a little bit more open space. Um, would love to revisit this movie. I mean, I'm happy to revisit Dracula just about at any time. But I, I mean, would... that's that's why you picked it for the watch list. hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So so thanks, Joshua, for for that tip off. I'll have to check that out. We also uh, heard from some other listeners as well. 
Um, yeah, so we actually tweeted about the Oscars, um, speaking of Oscars and Patreons and, and so on. Uh, we tweeted about Oscar nominations back when they first came out and got a lot of love, um, especially for Power of the Dog. So Dave Lester picked that as his best picture uh, winner. Um, Dave, we're definitely with you there. Um, we like that pick too. Um, and uh, we're excited to explore with some of those movies with you as well. I know you mentioned, he mentioned that um, he uh, hasn't seen Belfast, um, which he's not looking forward to, but all of the other ones on his list, uh, Nightmare Alley, Drive My Car, West Side Story, like Licorice Pizza. Um, Dave sounds like he's in for a good couple of weeks coming up with first time watches. I I think so as well. I, I've got a, I mean, I had Nightmare Alley, especially on in my top five uh, of the year, and I'm really glad to see that it got nominated. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Uh, we also saw a lot of love on Twitter for West Side Story, which, you know, again, no surprise there. It's a very fine film. Christy and Elijah Olson both wrote in separately to talk about how they they really like West Side Story and are I'm sure they're really happy now to see the uh, the nomination love that's been showered on on that film as well. Even if I don't know, uh, maybe it's not the most likely to actually take home any awards. It's, it kind of seems like Steven Spielberg's been showered with so many awards that the Academy <laughs> might feel like taking a step back on that. Yeah, but good to see nominations for uh, performers who are earlier in their career than Steven Spielberg, like Ariana DeBose in West Side Story. So some additional love for her as well there. Yeah. So uh, listeners, thanks for writing in and uh, thanks for all of you who are, who are listening. And like I said before, we always love to hear from you. So write us on Twitter or over email and you just might read your feedback out on the show. Yes, we're back here in the second part of the show, and this is the watch list segment. And for those of you who haven't been listening along for the last couple of weeks, this is a brand new segment where uh, we take the opportunity to recommend to each other movies that uh, we personally like that the other one, the other co-host hasn't necessarily seen. So we were talking about Dracula Mm -hmm. on the middle segment. That was the inaugural pick. Sarah really likes that movie. I had not had the chance to catch up with it. So that was my opportunity to do so. And kind of the watchword for this segment is, you know, there's there's no shame in catching up with uh, the treasures of cinematic past. Um, it's more of an opportunity. And uh, this week, Sarah actually had uh, a pick for me, one that I had not seen before that she really thinks highly of. We've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And that pick is broadcast news. So Sarah, uh, like... Kind of get us started. Talk about, you know, why you like this film so much and why you want to recommend it for the watch list segment. So two words, Holly Hunter. Um, I love this movie specifically because of her performance as a character who the movie kind of treats as a basket case, but who I personally identify with, which probably says a lot about me personally. Um, So for those who uh, potentially haven't seen broadcast news, Um, This is a movie about um, a broadcast news network. A handsome news anchor joins this network and also at the same time sort of joins a love triangle, sort of, um, between a producer played by Holly Hunter and a reporter uh, played by Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks's character um, has been carrying a torch for Holly Hunter for quite some time and Holly Hunter is not entirely sure like 
who to go with. It's also so much more than a love story because this is very much a movie that is about work and about the work that goes into reporting the news and presenting it to the public. So um, the news anchor character is played by William Hurt and he doesn't really have much of an education or reporting background at all. So a lot of what he represents is the shift from news as informing to news as entertainment. Um, And so part of the conflict at the center of the story isn't just the conflict between who's Holly Hunter going to end up with. It's also this person that she is interested in also represents everything that she hates about the evolving news landscape. So Kevin, one of the things that I was interested to know in, um, uh, one of the things that I was curious to know about from you was, um, did that conflict feel real to you at all? Like, does it feel like we've sort of lost that battle already between entertainment and information? Um, Have we lost that battle? Is this movie dated at all? Or did this ring true to you today? So that that's a that's a funny question because uh, I will rant to anyone who will listen to me about Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death and how he is exactly right about how news and entertainment has become so conflated um, that it's pretty much become impossible to actually report information that's not presented in an entertaining fashion. People want to not just be informed, but they want to be entertained at the same time. And the the weird incentives and conflicts that that presents. So I was really gratified that broadcast news digs into that. I you know to lay my cards on the table. I really liked this film. Yes. Um. And I I liked that that essential conflict. And I think it worked for me, not only because it's an area a topic that I'm personally interested in, but I also think that Brooks James L. Brooks uh, as the writer and director does interesting things with how he frames that conflict. So this isn't just a Jeremiah where Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks is the hard-nosed news people Mm -hmm. are the good guys and William Hurt's the villain who represents wickedness. That is something that Albert Brooks' character often says. He at at one point literally calls William Hurt's character the devil. Yes. And so that's that's definitely present. What I appreciated about the way um, it's presented overall in the film is it's a lot more complex. Yes, Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks are technically correct, but they also are presented as having certain neuroses and negative personality traits that arise out of this belief that everything must be completely factual. Everything, you know, something is not newsworthy unless it's serious. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, they believe that there's there's absolutely no point in presenting something in a winsome, entertaining manner. They just want... You know, it's just the facts, man. And uh, the film takes pains to present that uh, approach to their profession and to their lives as having its own shortcomings. And I, I really enjoyed that. I, and I felt like it made the the overall story just feel very complex and thorny in very gratifying ways. Yeah. And it's funny because I think there's also a level of hypocrisy amongst like the old hat journalists as well. Like there's a moment when William Hurt's character first reports to work. And um, all of these journalists are standing around in a circle, like asking, well, what, what would you do in order to get the news? Would you tell a source that you loved them in order to be able to get the information that you want to hear? Um, and 
every single one of them is willing to get a little bit sneaky about what they're doing. Like they're they're after the facts, but they're after the facts in a way that feels almost a little bit less honest. And so I think William Hurt's character appearing on the scene um, and then just um, sort of shattering that illusion open, I think, is is quite telling and smart, I think. I, I appreciate that the movie doesn't just present the journalists who have been working at this broadcast network for forever as we're just the good guys and we've always been the good guys and we've always been right. I love how thorny that situation gets. Yeah. And I think also the the other thing that I really liked about this picture is William Hurt's performance. Yes. Um, so uh, he plays his, his character's name is Tom Grunick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, e- even though the, the script takes pains to show that, you know, he, he isn't just the two dimensional villain. It would be very easy for both the, the person directing the actor playing the role and the actor playing that role to portray him in a very simplistic way. So it, yeah, he essentially Tom Grunick is kind of a dope. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, he's at least, if he's not dope, he's at least very shallow and it's often tempting for a film to portray a person like that is not really having much of an inner life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, that's not true. Even, even those who aren't necessarily the most intellectually formidable or somebody who is a shallow person, like they're still a human being who has, you know, desires and a sense of self and, uh, you know, their own, their own complexities. And I think this film and especially Hertz performance capture that very well. Tom Grunick doesn't feel like just kind of a, a quote unquote a pretty face he's very compelling and there's just so so many subtleties that william hurt puts into him where he does you you you're won over by him just the way that that holly hunter is in a lot of ways and i really i really liked the experience of understanding what he's quote unquote represents but also the the ways that Hurt and Brooks don't take that as an invitation to engage in caricature. Yeah, yeah. And with Hurt, you can kind of see the wheels turning in his head as he's watching everybody else go about their work. But it's not just he's trying to keep up because he's kind of an empty shell of a person because he's not that. Um, And he's also allowed to have a lot of like expertise by the script. This isn't just William Hurt bringing a lot of depth to a character that's been drawn in broad strokes. Like the character has been well thought out as well by James L. Brooks. Um, there's a scene where Tom is directing Aaron, Albert Brooks's character, on how to read the news in front of a camera. Aaron has done this in the past, but because the news landscape is changing, like there are different norms, um, he has to present himself in a certain way. And so Tom actually like takes the time to show him how it's done. Like, this is how you sit. This is how you wear your jacket. This is the way that you're supposed to face the camera. Don't look like you're reading the news. Look like you're giving your own thoughts to the audience. And Aaron just isn't able to do that. He's an incredible performer. Sorry. He's an incredible journalist, but he's not a good newscaster. He's not a good news anchor. Like that's not the job that he's good at. And Tom is. And I I think it's important to see these characters like go about their daily lives and attempt to do the work that they've been assigned to do and either be really good at it if it's within their strengths or also be absolutely terrible at it. Yeah, the the scene the the scene where Aaron finally gets his big shot to oh, to be news anchor for a night is you know, it, it's one of the set the big set pieces, comic set pieces of the film just 
the way sweat just sort of pours off of him and the way he you you see the difference in the way a an on-camera professional like Tom can can make that look effortless mm-hmm. and the way that Aaron is is just clearly out of his depth trying to do exactly the same job. And I think that there's the earlier uh, sequence where Tom gets his first gig on the air. He has to be the anchor for a special report and you know he doesn't know anything. Nothing. He doesn't know the first thing about the the situation that's transpiring, about the any of the background info. Um, but because he's got Holly Hunter's producer in his earpiece and he's got all these other people working behind the scenes to make him look good, he he can make it he can present it to the people who are watching in a way that is is really compelling. And the way Brooks shoots that scene, it's like an action, it's it's an action scene. The way yeah. the cutting is is so dynamic, the camera movement creates this suspense. You're always on the edge of your seat, like, is he gonna pull it off? Is he gonna pull it off? But you forget that it's basically just you're watching a guy sit in a chair, repeat the things that are coming through an earpiece. Yes. Yeah, there's and the whole movie, I feel like, is shot like that. I don't notice the camera work in this movie, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so good at doing like what it does, because it's not calling any attention to itself. Kind of like the good reporting that's presented in this movie is also not supposed to call any attention to itself. It's just there to give you information and then allow you to synthesize like what you want from it, for better or for worse. Um, there's also an earlier shot or an earlier scene where Holly Hunter's producer, Holly Hunter's character's name is Jane, is working on finishing up a piece that's about to go out on national television. And she's got 15 minutes to do it. And she thinks to herself, like she, and she thinks about, um, an additional touch that she probably like needs to add in order to bring the story home for the viewer where she says like we need to add this additional piece of artwork and she's going through cutting this report and thinking through about like how to how to present it and then she ends up getting um Joan Cusack in a lovely little role in here to like run back and forth throughout the studio getting the information that she needs getting everything cut together like getting it in just in time to be put onto the air and that also is shot like an action scene and Jane Craig Holly Hunter is the action star of this entire show yeah and you were right on to talk about how great Holly Hunter is in in this role. She's she's so magnetic. Um, she's got this again. The way the character is written, she is kind of like a basket case. One of the first things we see her do in the entire film is she she hangs up the the phone after after talking to Aaron, mm-hmm. and then she just she quietly checks her watch. She says, "Okay, I've got a little bit of time," yeah. and she takes that time to do what to just break down crying yes. all by herself in the room. And it doesn't feel from Hunter like it's it, it it doesn't feel broad like oh you know like this is the character being a basket case isn't that wacky mm-hmm. it's it's it feels con- convincing and it makes me it made me feel for the rest of the, the picture like I want to find out okay well why what is it about her that like why why is she this way yeah and I I that was the compelling thing that draws the audience through the entire film through all the ups and downs and. Uh, interpersonal entanglements well and the her unplugging the phone and stopping to cry like she does that regularly like she has scheduled out time to cry she's that much of a producer and that dedicated to her job that she's not going to let her emotional life get in the way of the job that she needs to do and i just i love that about her it gives her a sense of 
vulnerability and then also I think an additional steel that you probably wouldn't have gotten if she were just like on and on top of it the entire time like she has to be right she has to be the person who knows like which route to tell the taxi driver to take she also has to be this person who allows herself to break down but just at this one specific time because there's also work that needs to be done it's it's sort of the difference between a a joss whedon sort of feminism where you know the 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 female protagonist has to be just just awesome in every way Mm -hmm. and that's sort of that's how you write a strong woman is that she's just invulnerable to to any sort of a flaw or or self-doubt or anything like that contrast that with this film where she does feel she is a very strong woman but that's not because she's just invulnerable there's mm-hmm. there's a there's a certain amount of vulnerability there with, just as there is with any actual human being that the strength that it takes for her to carry through those personal neuroses and to produce the good work that she does and carry on the life that she does. That's what makes her an impressive person. Yeah, yeah. And even Joan Cusack's character like tells her at one point, like, you're my hero except for socially, which (laughs) (laughs) this this screenplay is really good. Oh yeah. Just the writing and like just how quippy everything is and the way that everybody like delivers those lines, like very strong direction, very strong acting. It just kind of comes together and just feels like magic. It it I mean the the performances, again, I keep coming back to you know, William Hurt, how you watch him and you, and because you've seen him in that first scene where his, you know, as as a child, Tom Grunick's father kind of confronts him about, you've gotten bad grades and you kind of see the kid turning on the emotion like, oh, I'm going to do better. I will, I will. And it seems very genuine, but there's kind of this undercurrent of like, he's putting on a show because he knows if he really, you know, turns up the emotional reaction, that's going to sell it better. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Tom Grunick says. He literally says, part of being an anchor is you have to sell yourself mm-hmm. and you have to sell the news. Yeah. And it, it, it again, that's kind of the point where the the devil in him comes out. He's like, you, you got to sell. You got to kind of like, you, you got to kind of grease the wheels a little bit with a little bit of insincerity because really that's that's how you're the most sincere is if you just show show yourself the real you with just a little bit of polishing up so that people will buy it and, you know, actually know be willing to accept the real you and i appreciate that holly um that jane kind of like falls for that a little bit like there is a moment where he cries on camera like in in the middle of reporting and there's there's a bit of subterfuge involved there but in the moment she says like that was real and it got me and you can kind of see her respecting him more as a person i think because he is emotionally caught up in the story that he's telling at least the way that he's presented it um and then i think that kind of gets at like the core thesis of this movie is which is that like there's going to be that slippery slope of like well how far do you go like where do you draw that line between entertainment and just the facts and i don't think anybody ever really fully gets it right in this movie which i appreciate well and that's and that's some of the magic of it too is you talked about the quippiness earlier right the, it is very funny you know watching you know the screwball uh back and forth between aaron and jane between tom and aaron and yet it's not just sort of like uh rapid fire quips mm-hmm. you you understand that for example aaron the the quippiness that he has with jane is part of it's part of you know he he does really kind of adore her mm-hmm. but he also has a lot of self-hatred like he yeah. he he doesn't he doesn't like himself very much um he doesn't like people very much mm-hmm. and that that 
is part of what makes it funny, but it's also what makes him human. Mm -hmm. And that's why he feels driven to make these quips. And, you know, Tom, uh, you know, he, he and his and Aaron's uh, repartee, it's sort of like Tom's sort of the butt of the joke, but you also see that Tom under, when, when he receives these barbs from Aaron, like he understands what Aaron's doing. He's not a total idiot oh, yeah. and he can give as good as he gets. And I just think the movie didn't have to do those things to be a, entertaining the fact that it does do do those things i think makes this film really very very good mm -hmm. yeah it presents the facts and it's entertaining at the same time it strikes that special balance it embodies exactly what the characters wish that they could embody in their own careers yes it's man uh it's a very good film listeners if you have not checked out broadcast news uh take it from me someone who had not seen it until a couple weeks ago it's very much worth your time. It is currently on Amazon Prime, I believe. I believe so. So uh, it's it's available for streaming in that way. And like I said, it's it's worth your time. It's a great comedy. It's a great uh, uh, critique, I guess, of media culture. I, it's It's got it all. What can I say? It's, Thanks for the pick, Sarah. I've I, really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that you liked this movie. That makes me really happy. Yeah. Well, listeners... I think that'll probably do it for, for this segment. This was the watch list. Uh, next week, we are going to be offering up... What are we going to be offering up? Do we... I don't think we decided on Oh, yeah, that. we haven't decided, so I'll just skip that out. Sorry, Jonathan. <clears throat> next week, we're going to be offering... Oh, shoot, we should pick one, though, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Sorry, Jonathan. Sidebar, I need to actually like pick out the, <laughs> the watch list. I was wondering if you were just going to surprise me. Or oh, <laughs> man, I should have. I should have. Yeah. Um, sorry, Jonathan. Uh, Do you need the watch list pool, or uh, I, I'm going for a different one? Um, let's see. Next week we're doing Cyrano. Cyrano. There's a, a, an easy on screen one. Mm. Um, uh, I might not do one. That looks like something that is similar to Cyrano. Should find something like that. All good. <clears throat> I'll be looking for common themes anyway. Um, I always do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't do, do something off the cuff like this. Uh, so we'll, we'll just like announce it on Twitter or something. That sounds okay. good. Sorry, Jonathan. Um, let me. Uh, let me restart that from, from the end of the Watchlist segment. Listeners, that'll about wrap it up for this week's episode. That was the Watchlist segment where we talked about broadcast news. Sarah, I've got another pick for you next week that I think you're really going to like. Uh, but for now, I think that'll do it. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.